This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Six His Burglary. One. The fact that Denry Machin decided not to drive behind his mule to Snade Hall showed in itself that the enterprise of interviewing the Countess of Chell was not quite the simple daily trifling matter that he strove to pretend it was. The mule was part of his more recent splendour. It was aged seven, and it had cost Denry ten pounds. He had bought it off a farmer whose wife stood in St. Luke's Market. His excuse was that he needed help in getting about the five towns in pursuit of cottage rents, for his business of a rent-collector had grown. But for this purpose a bicycle would have served equally well, and would not have cost a shilling a day to feed, as the mule did, nor have shied at policemen, as the mule nearly always did. Denry had bought the mule simply because he had been struck all of a sudden with the idea of buying the mule. Some time previously, Jos Curtney, the deputy mayor, who became mayor of Bursley, on the Earl of Chell being called away to govern an Australian colony, had made an enormous sensation by buying a flock of geese and driving them home himself. Denry did not like this. He was indeed jealous, if a large mind can be jealous. Jos Curtney was old enough to be his grandfather, and had been a recognised card and character since before Denry's birth. But Denry, though so young, had made immense progress as a card, and had, perhaps justifiably, come to consider himself as the premier card, the very ace, of the town. He felt that some reply was needed to Curtney's geese, and the mule was his reply. It served excellently. People were soon asking each other whether they had heard that Denry Machin's latest was to buy a mule. He obtained a little old Victoria for another ten pounds, and a good set of harness for three guineas. The carriage was low, which enabled him, as he said, to nip in and out much more easily than in and out of a trap. In his business you did almost nothing but nip in and out. On the front seat he caused to be fitted a narrow box of Japan tin, with a formidable lock and slits on the top. This box was understood to receive the rents as he collected them. It was always guarded on journeys by a cross between a mastiff and something unknown, whose growl would have terrorised a lion-tamer. Denry himself was afraid of Roger, the dog, but he would not admit it. Roger slept in the stable behind Mrs. Machin's cottage, for which Denry paid a shilling a week. In the stable there was precisely room for Roger, the mule, and the carriage, and when Denry entered to groom or to harness, something had to go out. The equipage quickly grew into a familiar sight in the streets of the district. Denry said that it was funny without being vulgar. Certainly it amounted to a continual advertisement for him, an infinitely more effective advertisement than, for instance, a sandwichman at eighteen pence a day, and costing no more, even with the licence and the shoeing. Moreover, a sandwichman has this inferiority to a turnout. When you have done with him, you cannot put him up at auction and sell him. Further, there are no sandwichmen in the five towns— in that democratic and independent neighbourhood, nobody would deign to be a sandwichman. 
The mulish vehicular display does not end the tale of Denry's splendour. He had an office in St. Luke's Square, and in the office was an office boy, small but genuine, and a real copying press, and outside it was the little square signboard, which in the days of his simplicity used to be screwed on to his mother's door. His mother's steely firmness of character had driven him into the extravagance of an office, even after he had made over a thousand pounds out of the Llandidno lifeboat in less than three months, she would not listen to a proposal for going into a slightly larger house, of which one room might serve as an office. Nor would she abandon her own labours as a seamstress. She said that since her marriage she had always lived in that cottage, and had always worked, and that she meant to die there, working, and that Denry could do what he chose. He was a bold youth— but not bold enough to dream of quitting his mother. Besides, his share of household expenses in the cottage was only ten shillings a week. So he rented the office, and he hired an office-boy, partly to convey to his mother that he should do what he chose, and partly for his own private amusement. He was thus at an age when fellows without imagination are fraying their cuffs for the enrichment of their elders, and glad if they can afford a cigar once a month, in possession of a business, business premises, a clerical staff, and a private carriage, drawn by an animal unique in the five towns. He was living on less than his income, and in the course of about two years, to a small extent by economies, and to a large extent by injudicious but happy investments, he had doubled the Llandidno thousand, and won the deference of the manager of the bank at the top of St. Luke's Square, one of the most unsentimental men who ever wrote refer to drawer on a cheque. And yet Denry was not satisfied. He had a secret woe, due to the fact that he was gradually ceasing to be a card, and that he was not multiplying his capital by two every six months. He did not understand the money market, nor the stock market, nor even the financial article in the signal. But he regarded himself as a financial genius— and deemed that as a financial genius he was vegetating, and as for setting the town on fire, of painting it scarlet, he seemed to have lost the trick of that. 2. And then, one day, the populace saw on his office door, beneath his name-board, another sign. Five Town Universal Thrift Club, Secretary and Manager E. H. Machin. An idea had visited him. Many tradesmen formed slate clubs, goose clubs, turkey clubs, whisky clubs, in the autumn for Christmas. Their humble customers paid so much a week to the tradesmen, who charged them nothing for keeping it, and at the end of the agreed period they took out the total sum in goods, dead or alive, eatable, drinkable, or wearable. Denry conceived a universal slate club. He meant it to embrace each of the five towns— he saw forty thousand industrial families paying weekly instalments into his slate club. He saw the slate club entering into contracts with all the principal tradesmen of the entire district, so that the members of the slate club could shop with slate club tickets practically where they chose. He saw his slate club so powerful that no tradesman could afford not to be in relations with it. He had induced all Flandino to perform the same act daily for nearly a whole season, and he now wished to induce all the vast five towns to perform the same act to his profit for all eternity. And he would be a philanthropist into the bargain. 
He would encourage thrift in the working man and the working man's wife. He would guard the working man's money for him, and to save trouble to the working man he would call at the working man's door for the working man's money. Further, as a special inducement and to prove superior advantages to ordinary slate clubs, he would allow the working man to spend his full nominal subscription to the club as soon as he had actually paid only half of it. Thus, after paying ten shillings to Denry, the working man could spend a pound in Denry's chosen shops, and Denry would settle with the shops at once, while collecting the balance weekly at the working man's door. But this privilege of anticipation was to be forfeited or postponed if the working man's earlier payments were irregular. And Denry would bestow all these wondrous benefits on the working man without any charge whatsoever. Every penny that members paid in, members would draw out. The affair was enormously philanthropic. Denry's modest remuneration was to come from the shopkeepers upon whom his scheme would shower new custom. They were to allow him at least twopence in the shilling discount on all transactions, which would be more than sixteen per cent on his capital, and he would turn over his capital three times a year. He calculated that out of fifty per cent per annum he would be able to cover working expenses and a little over. Of course, he had to persuade the shopkeepers. He drove his mule to Hanbridge, and began with Bostock's, the largest but not the most distinguished drapery house in the five towns. He succeeded in convincing them on every point except that of his own financial stability. Bostock's indicated their opinion that he looked far too much like a boy to be financially stable. His reply was to offer to deposit fifty pounds with them before starting business, and to renew the sum in advance as quickly as the members of his club should exhaust it. Checks talk. He departed with Bostock's name at the head of his list, and he used them as a clinching argument with other shops. But the prejudice against his youth was strong and general. Yes, tradesmen would answer, what you say is all right, but you're so young, as if to insinuate that a man must be either a rascal or a fool until he is thirty, just as he must be either a fool or a physician after he's forty. Nevertheless, he had soon compiled a list of several score shops. His mother said, "'Why don't you grow a beard? Here you spend money on razors, strops, soaps, and brushes, besides a quarter of an hour of your time every day, and cutting yourself, all to keep yourself from having something that would be the greatest help to you in business. With a beard you'd look at least thirty-one. Your father had a splendid beard, and so could you if you chose.' This was high wisdom but he would not listen to it. The truth is, he was getting somewhat dandiacal. At length his scheme lacked naught but what Denry called a right-down good starting shove. In a word, a fine advertisement to fire it off. Now he could have had the whole of the first page of the signal at that period, for five and twenty pounds, but he had been so accustomed to free advertisements of one sort or another that the notion of paying for one was loathsome to him. Then it was that he thought of the Countess of Chell, who happened to be staying at Knype. If he could obtain that great aristocrat, that ex-mayoress, that lovely witch, that benefactor of the district, to honour his thrift club as a patroness, success was certain. Everybody in the five towns sneered at the Countess, and called her a busybody. She was even dubbed Interfering Iris. 
Iris being one of her eleven Christian names. The Five Towns was fiercely democratic, in theory. In practice, the Countess was worshipped. Her smile was worth at least five pounds, and her invitation to tea was priceless. She could not have been more sincerely adulated in the United States, the home of social equality. Denry said to himself, "'And why shouldn't I get her name as patroness? I will have her name as patroness.' Hence the expedition to Sneyd Hall, one of the ancestral homes of the Earls of Chell. 3. He had been to Sneyd Hall before many times, like the majority of the inhabitants of the five towns, for by the generosity of its owner Sneyd Park was always open to the public. To picnic in Sneyd Park was one of the chief distractions of the five towns on Thursday and Saturday afternoons. But he had never entered the private gardens. In the midst of the private gardens stood the hall, shut off by immense iron palisades, like a lion in a cage at the zoo. On the autumn afternoon of his historic visit, Denry passed with qualms through the double gates of the palisade, and began to crunch the gravel of the broad drive that led in a straight line to the overwhelming palladian façade of the hall. Yes, he was decidedly glad that he had not brought his mule. As he approached nearer and nearer to the Countess's front door, his arguments in favour of the visit grew more and more ridiculous. Useless to remind himself that he had once danced with the Countess at the municipal ball, and amused her to the giggling point, and restored her lost fan to her. Useless to remind himself that he was a quite exceptional young man, with a quite exceptional renown, and the equal of any man or woman on earth. Useless to remind himself that the Countess was notorious for her affability, and also for her efforts to encourage the true welfare of the five towns. The visit was grotesque. He ought to have written. He ought at any rate to have announced his visit by a note. Yet only an hour earlier he had been arguing that he could most easily capture the Countess by storm, with no warning or preparations of any kind. Then, from a lateral path, a closed carriage and pair drove rapidly up to the hall, and a footman bounced off the hammercloth. Denry could not see through the carriage, but under it he could distinguish the skirts of someone who had got out of it. Evidently the Countess was just returning from a drive. He quickened his pace, for at heart he was an audacious boy. "'She can't eat me,' he said. This assertion was absolutely irrefutable and yet there remained in his bold heart an irrational fear that after all she could eat him. Such is the extraordinary influence of a Palladian façade. After what seemed several hours of torture, entirely novel in his experience, he skirted the back of the carriage, and mounted the steps to the portal. And although the coachman was innocuous, being apparently carved in stone, Denry would have given a ten-pound note to find himself suddenly in his club, or even in church. The masonry of the hall rose up above him like a precipice. He was searching for a bell-knob in the face of the precipice, when a lady suddenly appeared at the doors. At first he thought it was the Countess, and that heart of his began to slip down the inside of his legs. But it was not the Countess. "'Well?' demanded the lady. She was dressed in black. "'Can I see the Countess?' he inquired. The lady stared at him. He handed her his professional card, which lay waiting already in his waistcoat pocket. 
"'I will ask my lady,' said the lady in black. Denry perceived from her accent that she was not English. She disappeared through a swinging door, and then Denry most clearly heard the Countess's own authentic voice, saying in a pettish, disgusted tone, "'Oh, bother!' And he was chilled. He seriously wished that he had never thought of starting his confounded Universal Thrift Club. After some time, the carriage suddenly drove off, presumably to the stables. As he was now within the hollow of the porch, a sort of cave at the foot of the precipice, he could not see along the length of the façade. Nobody came to him. The lady who had promised to ask my lady whether the latter could see him did not return. He reflected that she had not promised to return. She had merely promised to ask a question. As the minutes passed, he grew careless, or grew bolder, gradually dropping his correct attitude of a man about town paying an afternoon call, and peered through the glass of the doors that divided him from the Countess. He could distinguish nothing that had life. One of his preliminary tremors had been caused by a fanciful vision of multitudinous footmen, through a double line of whom he would be compelled to walk in order to reach the Countess. But there was not even one footman. This complete absence of indoor footmen seemed to him remiss, not in accordance with centuries of tradition concerning life at Snaid. Then he caught sight, through the doors, of the back of Jock, the Countess's carriage-footman, and the son of his mother's old friend. Jock was standing motionless at a half-open door to the right of the space between Denry's double doors and the next pair of double doors. Denry tried to attract Jock's attention by singular movements and strange noises of the mouth. But Jock, like his partner the coachman, appeared to be carven in stone. Denry decided that he would go in and have speech with Jock. They were on Christian name terms, or had been a few years ago. He unobtrusively pushed at the doors, and at the very same moment Jock, with a start, as though released from some spell, vanished away from the door to the right. Denry was now within. "'Jock!' he gave a whispering cry, rather conspiratorial in tone, and as Jock offered no response, he hurried after Jock through the door to the right. This door led to a large apartment— which struck Denry as being an idealization of a first-class waiting-room at a highly important terminal station. In a wall to the left was a small door, half open. Jock must have gone through that door. Denry hesitated. He had not properly been invited into the hall. But in hesitating he was wrong. He ought to have followed his prey without qualms. When he had conquered qualms and reached the further door, his eyes were met, to their amazement, by an immense perspective of great chambers. Denry had once seen a Pullman car, which had halted at Knipe Station, with a French actress on board. What he saw now presented itself to him as a train of Pullman cars, one opening into the other, constructed for giants. Each car was about as large as the large hall in Bursley Town Hall and like that auditorium had a ceiling painted to represent blue sky, milk-white clouds, and birds. But in the corners were groups of naked cupids, swimming joyously on the ceiling. In Bursley Town Hall there were no naked cupids. He understood now that he had been quite wrong in his estimate of the room by which he had come into this Versailles. Instead of being large, it was tiny, and instead of being luxurious, it was merely furnished with miscellaneous odds and ends left over from more important furnishings. It was indeed naught but a nondescript box of a hole, 
insignificantly wedged between the state apartments and the outer lobby. For an instant he forgot that he was in pursuit of Jock. Jock was perfectly invisible and inaudible. He must, however, have gone down the vista of the great chambers, and therefore Denry went down the vista of the great chambers after him, curiously expecting to have a glimpse of his long salmon-tinted coat or his cockaded hat popping up out of some corner. He reached the other end of the vista, having traversed three enormous chambers, of which the middle one was the most enormous and the most gorgeous. There were high windows everywhere to his right, and to his left in every chamber double doors, with gilt handles of a peculiar shape. Windows and doors with equal splendour were draped in hangings of brocade. Through the windows he had a glimpse of the gardens in their autumnal colours, but no glimpse of a gardener. Then a carriage flew past the windows at the end of the suite, and he had a very clear, though a transient, view of two menials on the box-seat. One of those menials he knew must be Jock. Hence Jock must have escaped from the state suite by one of the numerous doors. Denry tried one door after another, and they were all fastened firmly on the outside. The gilded handles would turn, but the lofty and ornate portals would not yield to pressure. Mystified and startled, he went back to the place from which he had begun his explorations, and was even more seriously startled and more deeply mystified to find nothing but a blank wall where he had entered. Obviously he could not have penetrated through a solid wall. A careful perusal of the wall showed him that there was indeed a door in it, but that the door was artfully disguised by painting and other devices so as to look like part of the wall. He had never seen such a phenomenon before. A very small glass knob was the door's sole fitting. Denry turned this crystal, but with no useful result. In the brief space of time since his entrance, that door and the door by which Jock had gone had been secured by unseen hands. Denry imagined sinister persons bolting all the multitudinous doors and inimical eyes staring at him through many keyholes. He imagined himself to be the victim of some fearful and incomprehensible conspiracy. Why, in the sacred name of common sense, should he have been imprisoned in the state suite? The only answer to the conundrum was that nobody was aware of his quite unauthorised presence in the state suite. But then why should the state suite be so suddenly locked up, since the Countess had just come in from a drive? It then occurred to him that instead of just coming in, the Countess had been just leaving. The carriage must have driven round from some humbler part of the hall, with the lady in black in it, and the lady in black, perhaps a lady's maid, alone had stepped out from it. The Countess had been waiting for the carriage in the porch, and had fled to avoid being forced to meet the unfortunate Denry. Humiliating thought! The carriage had then taken her up at a side-door, and now she was gone. Possibly she had left Snade Hall not to return for months, and that was why the doors had been locked. Perhaps everybody had departed from the hall, save one aged and deaf retainer. He knew, from historical novels which he had glanced at in his youth, that in every hall that respected itself, an aged and deaf retainer was invariably left solitary during the absences of the noble owner. He knocked on the small disguised door. His unique purpose in knocking was naturally to make a noise, but something prevented him from making a noise. He felt that he must knock decently, discreetly. He felt that he must not outrage the conventions. No result to this polite summoning. He attacked other doors. 
He attacked every door he could put his hands on, and gradually he lost his respect for decency in the conventions proper to halls, knocking loudly and more loudly. He banged. Nothing but sheer solidity stopped his sturdy hands from going through the panels. He so far forgot himself as to shake the doors with all his strength furiously. And finally he shouted, "'Hi there! Hi! Can't you hear?' Apparently the aged and deaf retainer could not hear. Apparently he was the deafest retainer that a peeress of the realm ever left in charge of a princely pile. "'Well, that's a nice thing,' Denry exclaimed, and he noticed that he was hot and angry. He took a certain pleasure in being angry. He considered that he had a right to be angry. At this point he began to work himself up into the state of not caring, into the state of despising Snade Hall and everything for which it stood. As for permitting himself to be impressed or intimidated by the lonely magnificence of his environment, he laughed at the idea, or more accurately he snorted at it. Scornfully he tramped up and down those immense interiors, doing the caged lion, and cogitating in quest of the right dramatic, effective act to perform in the singular crisis. Unhappily, the carpets were very thick, so that though he could tramp, he could not stamp, and he desired to stamp. But in the connecting doorways there were expanses of bare, highly polished oak floor, and here he did stamp. The rooms were not furnished after the manner of ordinary rooms. There was no round or square table in the midst of each, with a checked cloth on it, and a plant in the centre. Nor in front of each window was there a small table with a large Bible thereon. The middle parts of the rooms were empty, save for a group of statuary in the largest room. Great armchairs and double-ended sofas were ranged about in straight lines, and among these here and there were smaller chairs, gilded from head to foot. Round the walls were placed long narrow tables with tops like glass cases, and in the cases were all sorts of strange matters, such as coins, fans, daggers, snuff-boxes. In various corners white statues stood awaiting the day of doom, without a rag to protect them from the winds of destiny. The walls were panelled in tremendous panels, and in each panel was a formidable dark oil-painting. The mantelpieces were so preposterously high that not even a giant could have sat at the fireplace and put his feet on them. And if they had held clocks, as mantelpieces do, a telescope would have been necessary to discern the hour. Above each mantelpiece, instead of a looking-glass, was a vast picture. The chandeliers were overpowering in glitter and in dimensions. Near to a sofa, Denry saw a pile of yellow linen things. He picked up the topmost article, and it assumed the form of a chair. Yes, those articles were furniture covers. The hall, then, was to be shut up. He argued from the furniture covers that somebody must enter sooner or later to put the covers on the furniture. Then he did a few more furlongs up and down the vista, and sat down at the far end, under a window. Anyhow, there were always the windows. High though they were from the floor, he could easily open one, spring out, and slip unostentatiously away. But he thought he would wait until dusk fell. Prudence is seldom misplaced. The windows, however, held a disappointment for him. A mere bar, padlocked, prevented each one of them from being opened. It was a simple device. He would be under the necessity of breaking a plate-glass pane. For this enterprise he thought he would wait until black night. 
He sat down again. Then he made a fresh and noisy assault on all the doors. No result. He sat down a third time, and gazed into the gardens where the shadows were creeping darkly. Not a soul in the gardens. Then he felt a draught on the crown of his head, and looking aloft he saw that the summit of the window had a transverse glazed flap for ventilation, and that this flap had been left open. If he could have climbed up, he might have fallen out on the other side into the gardens and liberty. But the summit of the window was at least sixteen feet from the floor. Night descended. 4. At a vague hour in the evening, a stout woman, dressed in black, with a black apron, a neat violet cap on her head, and a small lamp in her podgy hand, unlocked one of the doors giving entry to the state rooms. She was on her nightly round of inspection. The autumn moon, nearly at full, had risen and was shining into the great windows, and in front of the furthest window she perceived in the radiance of the moonshine a pyramidal group somewhat in the style of a family of acrobats, dangerously arranged on the stage of a music-hall. The base of the pyramid comprised two settees. Upon these were several armchairs laid flat, and on the armchairs two tables covered with cushions and rugs. Lastly, in the way of inanimate nature, two gilt chairs. On the gilt chairs was something that unmistakably moved, and was fumbling with the top of the window. Being a stout woman, with a tranquil and sagacious mind, her first act was not to drop the lamp. She courageously clung to the lamp. "'Who's there?' said a voice from the apex of the pyramid. Then a subsidence began, followed by a crash and a multitudinous splintering of glass. The living form dropped onto one of the settees, rebounding like a football from its powerful springs. There was a hole as big as a coffin in the window. The living form collected itself, and then jumped wildly through that hole into the gardens. Denry ran. The moment had not struck him as a moment propitious for explanation. In a flash he had seen the ridiculousness of endeavouring to convince a stout lady in black that he was a gentleman paying a call on the Countess. He simply scrambled to his legs and ran. He ran aimlessly in the darkness, and sprawled over a hedge after crossing various flower-beds. Then he saw the sheen of the moon on Snade Lake, and he could take his bearings. In winter all the five towns skate on Snade Lake, if the ice will bear, and the geography of it was quite familiar to Denry. He skirted its east bank, plunged into Great Shendon Wood, and emerged near Great Shendon Station, on the line from Stafford to Knipe. He inquired for the next train in the tones of innocency, and in half an hour was passing through Snade Station itself. In another fifty minutes he was at home. The clock showed ten-fifteen. His mother's cottage seemed amazingly small. He said that he had been detained in Hanbridge on business, that he had had neither tea nor supper, and that he was hungry. Next morning he could scarcely be sure that his visit to Snade Hall was not a dream. In any event, it had been a complete failure. 5. It was on this untriumphant morning that one of the tenants under his control, calling at the cottage to pay some rent overdue, asked him when the Universal Thrift Club was going to commence its operations. He had talked to the enterprise to all his tenants, for it was precisely with his tenants that he hoped to make a beginning. He had there a clientele ready to hand, and as he was intimately acquainted with the circumstances of each, he could judge between those who would be reliable, and those to whom he would be obliged to refuse membership. 
The tenants, conclaving together of an evening on doorsteps, had come to the conclusion that the Universal Thrift Club was the very contrivance which they had lacked for years. They saw in it a cure for all their economic ills, and the gate to paradise. The dame who put the question to him on the morning after his defeat wanted to be the possessor of carpets, a new teapot, a silver brooch, and a cookery book, and she was evidently depending upon Denry. On consideration he saw no reason why the Universal Thrift Club should not be allowed to start itself by the impetus of its own intrinsic excellence. The dame was inscribed for three shares, paid eighteen pence entrance fee, undertook to pay three shillings a week, and received a document entitling her to spend three pounds eighteen shillings in sixty-five shops as soon as she had paid one pound nineteen shillings to Denry. It was a marvellous scheme. The rumour of it spread— before dinner, Denry had visits from other aspirants to membership, and he had posted a cheque to Bostock's, but more from ostentation than necessity, for no member could possibly go into Bostock's with his coupons until at least two months had elapsed. But immediately after dinner, when the posters of the early edition of the Signal waved in the streets, he had material for other thought. He saw a poster as he was walking across to his office. The awful legend ran— "'Astounding attempted burglary at Snaid Hall.' "'In buying the paper he was afflicted with a kind of ague, "'and the description of events at Snaid Hall was enough to give ague to a negro. "'The account had been taken from the lips of Mrs. Gator, housekeeper at Snaid Hall. "'She had related to a reporter how, upon going into the state suite before retiring for the night, "'she had surprised a burglar of Herculean physique and titanic proportions.' Fortunately, she knew her duty, and did not blench. The burglar had threatened her with a revolver, and then, finding such bluff futile, had deliberately jumped through a large plate-glass window and vanished. Mrs. Gator could not conceive how the fellow had effected an entrance. According to the reporter, Mrs. Gator said, effected an entrance, not got in. And here it may be mentioned that in the columns of The Signal, burglars never get into a residence— Without exception, they invariably effect an entrance. Mrs. Gator explained further how the plans of the burglar must have been laid with the most diabolic skill, how he must have studied the daily life of the hall patiently for weeks, if not months, how he must have known the habits and plans of every soul in the place, and the exact instant at which the Countess had arranged a drive to Stafford to catch the London Express. It appeared that, save for four maidservants, a page, two dogs, three gardeners, and the kitchen clerk, Mrs. Gator was alone in the hall. During the late afternoon and early evening, they had all been to assist at a rat-catching in the stables, and the burglar must have been aware of this. It passed Mrs. Gator's comprehension how the criminal had got clear away out of the gardens and park, for to set up a hue and cry had been with her the work of a moment. She could not be sure whether he had taken any valuable property, but the inventory was being checked, though surely for her an inventory was scarcely necessary, as she had been housekeeper at Snaid Hall for six-and-twenty years, and might be said to know the entire contents of the mansion by heart. The police were at work. They had studied footprints and debris. There was talk of obtaining detectives from London. Up to the time of going to press, no clue had been discovered— but Mrs. Gator was confident that a clue would be discovered, and of her ability to recognise the burglar when he should be caught. His features, as seen in the moonlight, were imprinted on her mind for ever. 
He was a young man, well-dressed. The Earl had telegraphed, offering a reward of twenty pounds for the fellow's capture. A warrant was out. So it ran on. Denry saw clearly all the errors of tact which he had committed on the previous day. He ought not to have entered uninvited, but having entered, he ought to have held firm in quiet dignity until the housekeeper came, and then he ought to have gone into full details with the housekeeper, producing his credentials, and showing her unmistakably that he was offended by the experience which somebody's gross carelessness had forced upon him. Instead of all that, he had behaved with simple stupidity, and the result was that a price was upon his head. Far from acquiring moral impressiveness and influential aid by his journey to Snade Hall, he had utterly ruined himself as a founder of a universal thrift club. You cannot conduct a thrift club from prison, and a sentence of ten years does not inspire confidence in the ignorant mob. He trembled at the thought of what would happen when the police learnt from the Countess that a man with a card, on which was the name of Machin, had called at Snade just before her departure. However, the police never did learn this from the Countess, who had gone to Rome for the autumn. It appeared that her maid had merely said to the Countess that a man had called, and also that the maid had lost the card. Careful research showed that the burglar had been disturbed before he had opportunity to burgle, and the affair, after raising a terrific bother in the district, died down. Then it was that an article appeared in the Signal, signed by Denry, and giving a full picturesque description of the state apartments at Snade Hall. He had formed a habit of occasional contributions to the signal. This article began, "'The recent sensational burglary at Snade Hall has drawn attention to the magnificent state apartments of that unique mansion. As very few but the personal friends of the family are allowed a glimpse of these historic rooms, they being, of course, quite close to the public,' we have thought that some account of them might interest the readers of the signal. On the occasion of our last visit, etc. He left out nothing of their splendour. The article was quoted as far as Birmingham in the Midlands Press. People recalled Denry's famous waltz with the Countess at the memorable dance in Bursley Town Hall, and they were bound to assume that the relations thus begun had been more or less maintained. They were struck by Denry's amazing discreet self-denial in never boasting of them. Denry rose in the market of popular esteem. Talking of Denry, people talked of the Universal Thrift Club, which went quietly ahead, and they admitted that Denry was of the stuff which succeeds, and deserves to succeed. But only Denry himself could appreciate fully how great Denry was, to have snatched such a wondrous victory out of such a humiliating defeat. His chin slowly disappeared from view under a quite presentable beard. But whether the beard was encouraged out of respect for his mother's sage advice, or with the object of putting the housekeeper of Snade Hall off the scent, if she should chance to meet Denry, who shall say? End of chapter 6